Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from the International Culinary Center, and today I'm actually out in California. Um, we have an ICC here, but it's in South Bay, and I am lucky enough to be sitting in the private dining room at Quince with today's guest, none other, the two-star Michelin, James Beard award-winning chef Michael Tusk. Hi, Michael. How, Hi, are, how are you? you? I'm great. Thanks. How are you? Good. I mean, first of all, I have to say how beautiful this restaurant is. It is so elegant. It's so divine. It's so sophisticated, but not intimidating at all. It's so comfortable. I appreciate Congratulations it. Congratulations. I always that. want the diner to relax when they come here. So. And your food is so delicious. If you've not been to Quince, it's, it's on the bucket list of must-do in life. So we're going to find out about this in a minute. Um, so, Michael, I'm going to talk about you. I mean, here you were, 2011 Esquire Magazine, Best Restaurant, uh, James Beard Award winner for the Pacific, and up for the Outstanding Chef for the whole United States last year, um, Zagat. You, you've won all of these awards. How did, how, how did you do it? The thing I love is you're from New Jersey, right? That is true. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, and uh, so tell me about New Jersey and is that where your Italian roots started? No, I actually have, um, you know, to, I'm sure some people surprised now, no Italian really roots whatsoever. I basically um, was born in uh, Patterson, New Jersey, and then my family moved uh, further north, and there was like a pretty good amount of, you know, small farms in, in that area until um, they kind of disappeared due to like a big real estate kind of boom. But I did go, you know, grow up with like you pick strawberry fields, uh, uh, dairy farms and so forth. So I was always interested. Well, in, New in, Jersey's name it is, it is, is the, the Garden State. The Garden State. So yeah. people don't realize that. But, <laughs> no. No. So, um, you know, I was always, uh, um, I always just loved to, to eat. And, uh, and um, my extended family in New York were caterers, so you know from an early age, I just uh, whether it was uh, carving the class turkey in home e- economics class or going on a field trip to like a wait wait know, you did home economics oh yeah what year <laughs> I don't I don't <laughs> no, no, want to age myself by telling you I mean how old were you when <laughs> oh, you did <laughs> probably uh, fifteen uh, so yeah, a fifteen so a fifteen year old guy yeah did home was everybody did everybody have to do home economics or did you choose. I, I think everybody had to do it, but, you know, we also had, like, the more, you know, um, masculine woodshop and so forth. But, no, it was a uh, Well, Charlie Palmer, you know, was quarterback of his football team, and he chose to do home economics. Yeah, I like so, him. He's a great so, guy, too. I like you know, him. And, and all the football players did it because they could eat in class. Well, <laughs> so. that, that was a, you know, primary objective also. Yeah. 
So no, I did. I did that, and I was always. Uh, I don't know. It was just uh, just love to eat and try different uh, you know foods as a kid. From you know my my mom always told me that uh, uh, I was a bit different because uh, my first trip to um, I think it was uh, just a family vacation where I discovered my love of uh, snails and escargot, and then from that point on, it was like. It was frog's legs and just anything that was different than just, you know, what I was uh, eating at home was was always very stimulating to me. Right, so, so I, so then you got you went to Tulane to college, right? I did. So, I, what what? How did you even know about New Orleans and what brought you down there? I was actually going to the University of Arizona, and then I made the mistake of visiting uh, my brother for I think Jazz Fest one year, and he was. Um, living in New Orleans and uh, the combination of food and music and just uh, there was always an event going on, something to, to do. Um, and, you know, especially the food, eating eating food in New Orleans at that time was, uh, you know, that was probably at the heyday of like, you know, K. Paul's. And uh, I had a girlfriend who, you know, was a, um, a server at, uh, um, might have been Gotro's or uh, another restaurant uh, and uh you know that was like that restaurant was basically two blocks from where i lived and uh um just uh, you know just started going to restaurants and the older restaurants in new orleans and the newer restaurants and and uh just started to love uh you know the cuisine of uh, the south and uh and that just really you know got me to start working in some restaurants when i was in new orleans and i was going to school and because of the fact that i i transferred colleges i was i was behind so i had to go to summer school so that allowed me to start working in restaurants and then i did some cooking for for you know just friends and you know some fraternities where they asked me to cater some parties for them and then there was a woman um who was actually a great influence on me um a friend who's still in new orleans took me to a small um it wasn't even a restaurant it was like a, a shotgun house in uh, in New Orleans, um, and uh, he was from Chicago, and um, he somehow found this woman, and it was like everything was three dollars and fifty cents, and she just prepared uh, um, like uh, you know Creole cuisine, and uh, we would sit down in her uh, kitchen table. And there was a, um, a jukebox, and her husband would be chopping up uh, you know all the peppers and uh, peppers <laughs> and onions at the table, and then. Everything was three fifty, and she would give us kind of seconds. So I'd have everything from uh, you know classics like red beans and rice to to you know we would actually ask her to make some things for us, and she would prepare them for us. And then that was her name was uh, Alberta Harris, and uh, she was also a, a singer. Yeah, she and, played uh, in New York. She was a great blues singer, wasn't she? She was. I don't know if it's no, the same I'm one, thinking but, Alberta Hunter. Yeah, there we go. Sorry, sorry. You know, this one, she was more, um, you know, she had a, her version of like Amazing Grace on the jukebox there, and I know she played it at Jazz Fest, and um, so I would ask her for for some recipes, whether it was for, you know, here's like a kid from New Jersey asking this this uh, great woman from New Orleans, uh, you know, how to make uh, you know specialties like jambalaya and so forth. So um, she did give me her jambalaya recipe, which she opened up her Bible on the kitchen table when when her husband John was uh, chopping the peppers and, and gave me that. And then, Do you still use that recipe? I still have it around, yeah. I, I don't make it as much as I did, but it definitely got me started with like how to prepare 
some of these dishes and I think with cooking it's always like seeing somebody somebody it's great uh, to go to a, a school and learn from somebody uh, who has a history in that type of you know, she cuisine and she she was able to show me she sat in her garden an old pair of jeans and she smiled at the sun and the pale olive trees she wiped the dirt from this is chris howell from cane vineyard and winery calling in from spring mountain above the napa valley thank you for listening to this show in our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. So then you went to CIA from New Orleans. When did the chef light bulb go off during this time when you're cooking? Well, I think I always kind of knew that I was going to go into a professional kitchen. Um, in a project in, I think, sixth grade, you had to take an 8 by 10 uh, you know, picture of yourself and then write a story. And my family always had that in, in, in our basement. And it said that I was either you know, going to be a chef or, or you know, a professional tennis player. And that didn't, that didn't happen. It probably would have been more lucrative. But uh, um, so I guess I predicted that was in, you know, when I was quite young. And uh, I just uh, always, you know, wanted to be in a kitchen and I liked seeing the action and what was going on. And uh, um, but I always was kind of guided by, you know, getting, a, getting a, an education and not just going directly into, into a school and learning more about uh, just kind of life in general. And so I was happy that I was able to study art history since, uh, you know, I like, I like having references to, to history and food and, and studying uh, um, just how things kind of change mm -hmm. in, in general. And uh, I think that was very helpful for me to, to you know, study, study art. I think I can talk to, you know, my cooks in the kitchen a little bit differently. And, and uh, you know, I loved culinary school. I loved uh, getting an art degree. I just try to combine combine the two of them, and it makes it more exciting to uh, to prepare. So what did you, you know, you were already cooking professionally before you went to culinary school. So what did you learn at culinary school? And what was that phase of your life like? I think um, um, I always wanted to, to get out as fast <laughs> as possible just because I felt like, um, you know, it was just a time where, where I was just itching to, itching to, to be in a kitchen and working, and and uh, I would have probably, you know, done something in a faster, you know, I I, I just like to, I'm always doing something, and and I don't like to take a long period of time. And after going to going to get an art degree, I felt like I wanted to just get into a kitchen and either go to Europe or or do something in a just you know soon thereafter. And uh, but it taught me how to work with. You know, you've got a diverse uh, um, diversity of like who's actually going to. With so many schools around these days, there's uh, there's so many different uh, uh, people with. Uh, you know, they may go straight from high school into a, you know a culinary school. They may be a career change. They may you know just be going to not be in a kitchen, but to learn something else about a you know food stylist or. So 
the industry is so diverse that you have, um, you know, just a, a very diverse uh, classrooms. Well, what I'm trying to get at is where, you know, you, you have young cooks. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe they learned on the job in a restaurant. Maybe they went to school. Um, doesn't matter. What should the head of a young cook be, either when they're first on the line, you know, first in a restaurant, or just coming out of school? Where was your head in those days? What you're a two-star Michelin chef now, and you it took, you know, we're going to go through the layers of what it took to get there. So, where do you? St- what kind of headset do you need when you're at at that entry level? I think even even now, you just have to get out of. Um, like a mindset that that you know you're that this is a, a glamorous kind of business, and I think at the base level, it's just a lot of it's a lot of work every every day. There's like a, so many components into what the guest is, uh, what you're delivering to them um, with a plate of uh, food, and that you just have to want to you want to you have to want to work a lot and not uh, not uh, shy away from from different um, situations that that might arise and. Um, I think you have to have more of like a, a European kind of like, you know, you're doing a, um, like you're in a European kitchen and you're, you're, you're starting your, your career and they'll send you to different, uh, different restaurants and different, uh, chefs. If you, if you do a good job for, for those chefs and, uh, you just have to want to work. There's no, so there's lots there's of no... different influences. It's almost like what I say, it's, it's like being in Florence during the Renaissance and you mm-hmm. had the ability to go into all these different studios of Michelangelo and Titian and all. And, and Definitely. You, you've got to have a baseline of skill, skill set to get into a good, uh, studio, but then you have to kind of observe from the masters. So how important was your art degree, not just at that stage, but, you know, what you do today. Is it important for a young person to experience a lot of outside life and not cut themselves so, you know... I think that's a great point. I think uh, the, the hard part about um, working your working your way up through the ranks of a, of a kitchen is you do learn from outside experience and, and travel and so forth. So I think as a young uh, aspiring cook or chef... Um, that you really want to be able to uh, to find a mentor, somebody that's really going to get your career started in the right direction. At the same time, will allow you to, you know, like go abroad or send you to another kitchen because you've kind of, um, you know, um, you just need to have a, a lot of uh, different experiences. And I think whether you're going to Italy or France or Spain, um, they're all important and not even just cooking. It's like tasting food seeing the different cultures, how that kind of rubs off on you is just as important as like the technique that you're going to learn in the different kitchens. And if you don't do that, like, cause I know from firsthand experience that sometimes you, you start a restaurant and you're, you're caught up in running your business and, and you may, maybe like two, three years before you're, you're able to get out and travel again. And then things happen so quickly in, uh, in the food world that, that, you know, you, it's, it's uh, years later and you, a whole trend has happened and, and, um, you've, you haven't missed out on it, but you really haven't been able to say, you know, go to Spain and spend, spend three months in a, a Spanish kitchen or just eat around or, or it's tough because, uh, so you, you, when you went to cooking school, right after cooking school, did you go to Europe? No, I went, uh, directly to San Francisco and then started working in San Francisco. And then I was in San Francisco and, um, basically was working in a kitchen and I had a, kind of a freak 
injury where I, I ripped up my knee in the kitchen and I had to do like physical therapy and was out of was out of work for maybe four months and then then I was able to then go across the bay since I was working in San Francisco and I went to to Chez Panisse and then I I worked there and then after I left Chez Panisse I was more um, you know I was more French Provencal oriented so I wanted to go to Provence and work and then which I did. did. Where, where, mm-hmm. did you, where did you work in Provence? There was a small uh, kind of relay chateau property outside of uh, Avignon in Creon Le Brave. So it's it's a it's a small um, property owned by a, um, a two Canadian gentlemen. So you're an American. You go into a French kitchen. You've been working in American kitchens. You've gone to culinary school. What was it like going into a French kitchen in Europe? It was, uh, you know. I wish my language skills would have been better, you know, even with all the studying of French, I felt like, you know, started at an early age and I feel like it's great that, you know, um, when there's a language program at, uh, not just in, uh, um, you know, at at culinary institutes that, that it's so important to be able to even just have like general terminology, food terminology and be able to, to talk about, uh, not just, uh, um, say French cuisine, but to really be able to explore like Italian cuisine was was important. So for me, uh, once the, the language skills uh, improved, I enjoyed myself more. But I have to be honest, it was you know it's hard. It's uh, everything happens so quickly in a kitchen, and if you can't understand your commands that you're being given, then then you know you. How long a day was it when you were in that kitchen? Oh, probably like you know, you know. 14, 16 hours, something like that. That wasn't. You, and were you working in America those that length of day? Well, when I opened up, um, you know, Quince at the old location, yeah, that was like you know, eighteen hours or or for you know probably four or five, close to six years before we moved moved over here. So it's definitely a survival of the fittest mentality that you have to have if you're gonna you want to own your own restaurant and especially in a um, you know a city like San Francisco. So yeah, I was definitely, I never shied away from, from doing anything extra to help out in any kitchen that I worked at, whether it was, you know, if I worked at a uh, Chez Panisse during the day in the cafe and I'd volunteer to work, work in the, um, you know, um, downstairs at nighttime. So, um, I feel like when you're, you're that age, you should, you know, every day you should get as much, uh, um, like a quality quality day in a kitchen and learn as much as possible and, and so who do who in that first let's say third of your professional life who were your major mentors um, or what was the major influence to shape you well it was definitely about um, it started off as as like say working at Japanese for for Alice and like just the aesthetic of of you know what that restaurant was about in terms of uh, um, how they procure products and the way they treat treat products and the connection from having um, their farm, which um, you would basically see uh, somebody pull up with a, a truck every day coming from the farm, and that it was definitely more about the in, in a more Italian uh, verbiage, the more the materia prima of what they were just a, the the raw products they were bringing in every day and the connections to the. Uh, to the farmers and how they worked with the farmers, and that was the the greatest influence that they had on me. Um, 
and then from a technique standpoint, you know, and it was also the relationships that you you had at that time period, whether it was, uh, you know, like uh, Peggy Smith from the Cowgirl Creamery now, uh, you know, who's a great artisan, cheesemaker, and, and just a great person to, to work with her, Catherine Brandell, who, who was there with her, who unfortunately, uh, uh, you know, passed away at a, an age that was way too, too young. Um, you know, it was like they were the, they were the chefs, but then I got to work with, uh, um, you know, a lot of people that were behind the scenes there that, that either decided to stay there for a long period of time or went into other businesses like a Michael Sullivan from Bone Imports who, whose brother is Steve Sullivan from Acme Bread. So there's all these different like connections that you, you have there. Jean-Pierre, he was, he was, you know, very, he was a, he, there was just a diversity of like these different folks, and then and then you throw in like working with uh, uh, Paul uh, Bertoli, and, and that was towards the end of my time there. But he was probably the greatest uh, influence in terms of the way I kind of cook today, combined with like everything else that I that I learned. He was more technique and and a sensibility and and an Italian awareness that that I don't think I. I had, nor do I think that restaurant had at that time period, where where I think he he definitely laid the the um, the groundwork for for what I was going to do in the future. And then I ended up working for for him for a number of years, and he was the the person who started taking me to to Italy, and uh, you know, like we stayed at a, uh, with a family in Modena at a Cooper's uh, house, and uh, we would just go on day trips to. You know, to visit somebody making uh, um, culatello like Massimo Spigaroli that we were talking about earlier, to uh, a gentleman uh, making Parmigiano Reggiano, and then the, the the folks that we were staying at were um, he was a cooper, but you know the whole family you know had generations of making Aceto Balsamico, um, not only the barrels but the, the vinegar production, and then, so I was able to meet that family, and then we would go on on day trips uh, just to visit these all these artisan you know food producers and that was definitely probably the you know to get away from california and to go to amelia romagna that definitely changed everything because i was always interested in in french food um and still am but i was able to to see elements of you know um like in a, an interaction between italy and france and that that i still kind of carry with me today i can remember things that i ate at that, that time period and where I ate them at. And, um, and I always was very fond of, uh, of, you know, I think as a chef, you have to be, um, open to all sorts of dining experiences and the way you kind of cook and, and to be able to see, you know, elegant Italian food and then see the same thing in, you know, in, in whether it's in, uh, a different region and you could be Emilia Romagna, it could be Alto Adige, it could be Piemonte to see that. Um, so I think most Americans have a, have a, you know, they always think of Italian food as like, um, in a, in a, not as an elegant as it, as, as it is sometimes if you're and like the chefs that are, are out today, because I think they were, they were constrained for a number of years of always just cooking the food from, from the region that they're in. And there was, there was like these shackles on them that through, through all the changes in, um, in the last number of years that, that, you know, you see this interaction between, you know, um, chefs that have spent time in Spain and France and Italy and the, the 
the Spanish chefs and the French chefs spend time in Italy and they, they see the greatness of, of, uh, of Italy and Italian cuisine and the Italians are spending time in, in France and in Spain and the techniques are, are, are move around at such a fast rate these days that, that that allowed me to, once I saw that, you know, I could come back and, and say, you know, like I can cook in a way that it still respects, um, you know, French food. And, and the elegance of it and the service and the, the dining experience, but with Italian flavor profiles. My gosh, you just described quince. And <laughs> so wait, we're gonna take a little to. we're gonna take a little <laughs> break here. We're gonna come back and we're gonna get into the quince story of how um, all those Michelin stars we won. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's Dorothy Can Hamilton and today my guest is Michael Tusk of Quince Restaurant. We're sitting here in San Francisco in his incredibly elegant, beautiful restaurant. So, Michael, how did this all come about? I mean, it's it's extraordinary between Quince and then you sort of have the kitchens in the middle, and you have Cortona, which is more a, a brasserie or you know or a trattoria. Exactly. Yeah, um, next door. If we're using different influences, <laughs> so how did how does this happen to somebody easily? Um. <laughs> Well, since we're open 10 years now, we just had our 10-year anniversary, and I had a, um, 10 nights of guest chefs coming from around the country, from New York and Los Angeles and Charleston and um, um, Alabama and so forth. Uh, just came from a lot of, uh, just a lot of, a lot of work, and I think the, the biggest lesson I could teach anybody that's going to um, into this profession is uh, you have to take a risk, a risk, and... Uh, you got to roll the dice and kind of, if you have that passion for, for, for wanting to run your own restaurant and, uh, um, then you just have to kind of go for it. And I was supposed to run, um, kind of like a luxury inn on the Sonoma coast and that was going to get built. And, um, so I left, uh, a job and then that didn't really, uh, come to fruition and I just decided to start looking for a restaurant around the. There was always this kind of uh, growing up in the the East Coast. There was always kind of a pull to maybe, you know, go back and and do something in the East. And then I just kind of felt that this was my home. I was going to stay here here and um, just started looking for a restaurant. And uh, finally found uh, after I think it was almost a one and a half two year search um, the old spot on uh, on Bush and Octavia and. Uh, you know, I just wanted to, you know, was. So was it? Was there a thing inside of you saying, "Okay, I've I've just experienced uh, all of this, uh, working with various people who are inspiring. I've eaten all of these foods. You've come back to San Francisco, um, and you could have gone to New Orleans or in New Jersey, Northeast, New York, but you came back to San Francisco. What is it inside you? Is it like the artist of saying, "Now it's time for me to do my own painting"? Um, is it? Is it your point of view of food that you wanted to get through? What what is that um, what is that thing inside you that needed to come out and take the risk, as you said, and the eighteen hours a day? What how do you describe that? I think it's just a cumulative effect of uh, of what you've learned from different people, and then you're you're in a very straightforward fashion. You just want to you want to be able to cook your own kind of food, and 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 I think the 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 friends that have either you know, worked for me or running restaurants, they've had that same feeling like you don't want to be told, you know, what to do by anybody, you know, whether it's a, 
um, it's just your time to, it's your food, it's what you're going to do and, and your expression. And you just... Uh, did need. you have one dish burning inside you that you, you said, when I finally get my restaurant, this dish is on it? Well, yeah, kind of. Uh, at that point, uh, the biggest inspiration I would have to say would be um, a meal that I had in uh, Piemonte. And I was with uh, two uh, Italian winemakers. And I, I left uh, the Bay Area to go on a, on a trip uh, by myself. And uh, I ended up in uh, Barbaresco. And um, I was in Barbaresco, and I was taken out by Aldo Vaca, Vaca who is uh, uh, from the Predatory de Barbaresco. And uh, he took me out with Paolo Siracco, who's a Moscato producer. And um, we went to uh, Da Guido in Cosuyole. And that was definitely the restaurant that that I saw this um, kind of combination of of everything that I loved about uh, French cuisine and the service and the elegance of it. And and I had been eating at restaurants throughout Piemonte that were a little bit more more um, of uh, like Osteria's and so forth, and just didn't have the the money to go to a uh, like a, a different experience. And and um, they took me there, and everything that I had had up to that point. Um, whether it was carne cruda or tagliarin or panna cotta or any of the dishes that I was eating on a daily basis, I had there, and uh, they were just much more refined and elegant and lighter, lighter, and just uh, had this kind of blissful quality to everything that I ate. It was just uh, I'll never, you know, I can I can tell you the entire meal from start to finish of what we had and what we drank, and um, that kind of changed changed everything because. I saw Italian flavor profiles in the dishes, but you know, it was just served in a different, uh, in a totally different like kind of arena of, of, of dining that I'd ever been to before. And um, and when I returned to the Bay Area, you know, I was definitely influenced by Piemonte's cuisine, and and uh, and that was. Uh, but definitely, I wanted to open up a restaurant. Um, so you had you a know. dream. How do you get the money? <laughs> To be that, blunt, <laughs> that that you have to scratch and kind of claw, and then that you know, takes so, a different skill set. So did you did you know how to do that? I just kind of lucked out, and, and in between um, coming back from some of these trips and the um, the end that I was supposed to open up not um, uh, taking place, I was able to kind of um, stay busy doing some like catering in San Francisco and the Bay Area, and I was just able to meet a lot of, uh, uh, through one family in particular, they just introduced me to a lot of people in the art world, which is great since I was already interested in in, uh, in art, and I was able to cook for them and meet a lot of um, different uh, influential people that, you know, just saw me cook for them for, for this uh, kind of interim period where, um, you know, I was, it was just a... So they became your backers. They did, and then you know, family definitely. My mm-hmm. uh, my wife Lindsay's family and my family. Who's your partner in the restaurant? Exactly, and she she's. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't wasn't for her. And uh, you know, she was definitely the the design and, and the business and the and the um, somebody that was much um, more elegant talking to 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 these these uh, individuals and where I was in the kitchen, but. Um, it wasn't done in a in a way that I said I have to meet these people to to it just came about in a natural kind of fashion. And so, then, what was the first year like? 
having your own restaurant. What was the biggest surprise for you? That, and, and what was the biggest, you know, great moment? I'd say the first year was hard, like um, just certain people that you, you've put trust in kind of like may not kind of work out like, you know, some folks crack under 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 the pressure of like, I mean, you start a restaurant, you're going to be there every day for, you know, I think I was there for like a couple hundred days in a, in a row, like you know, seven days a week. It wasn't uh, it wasn't anything. But, you know, you you kind of have to thrive on that and you have to like you've got these reserves because this is what you're, you've been set out to. That's your mission in life to get this restaurant open and and, um, you know, make a uh, first and foremost for people to taste your food and 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 want to, you know, you know, to see somebody smiling in your own, you know, it's like it's like you're having a dinner party and, and you're taking a dish out to your friends. That's that same feeling of 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 them really enjoying relaxing and not thinking about their outside life for a two and a half hour span and, and really um, eating and drinking and, and being comfortable is what I think I really wanted to do at that kind of location. So it was it was uh, it just kind of worked out in a way um that uh but it wasn't e- it wasn't easy by by any means it was it got very busy very quickly at that point i just wanted it to be more of like a neighborhood a neighborhood kind of restaurant it was definitely influenced if you looked at the first kind of menus by by certain regions in italy it was very uh you know it was it was piemontese but uh, i think when you're you're an american who's not italian then i've always just wanted to pay homage to these different regions and then and then as time kind of progressed now I want to you know put little nuances of, of myself into the, the food but it was like you know you look back uh, I don't care if it's uh, you know one three five years and the way you cooked at a certain time period the the whole world has changed the way people think about you know and back in that time period of uh, 2003 or four um, you know you'd get a review and it would be there was an actual magazine that you'd be waiting to to come out now before you're you're under construction there's people photographing you know um you know the the construction site uh, everything is is magnified so i feel for for the younger generation that that you know everything's so immediate now that you just have to deliver from from the moment you open up or 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 things aren't going to work out the way you want to so so 10 years ago you opened your restaurant you're working like a dog or a donkey as alan Siak mm-hmm. would say and and you're doing the comfort food, and, but now look at look at Quince. It's one of the most sophisticated rooms I've ever been in anywhere in the world, and beautiful. And you're still doing a, a comfort food in an elegant way. What was where was that evolution? How did you get from there to to here? How did that happen? Well, I always had I always liked um, whether I was in you know a restaurant in in Paris or or a restaurant in Italy that did have kind of more progressive food. And I think I was always open to, I think you have to be open to, to change as a chef and, and um, especially in a fine dining arena, um, you know, you learn from people that work for you also. And, and, you know, if somebody in my kitchen spent time in, in Japan, then, then I'd like to, you know, have them teach me something. And, and it's just a, an interaction with your, your own staff and your immediate, uh, um, inner crew of, uh, of chefs that you, you know, if I sit down to write a menu for the spring, you know, I'm going to just, I basically just write a list down of every, everything that, 
that first and foremost I like who I want to, who I want to, whose product I want to use because it's um, um, like a great example would be right now I've been waiting for a couple weeks and my favorite uh, um, my favorite winter citrus is uh, the uh, Kishu Mandarin from uh, uh, Jim Churchill uh, Churchill Farm and and like I can eat those uh, Kishus by uh, by the uh, just the whole basket I, I can eat them and I um, and he's a great farmer and I think his product is uh, is so amazing that I just want to feature it and I try to do that with whether it's Punterelle or or Salsify or or anything I just try to hone in on like you know who has something that is, is what I consider to be better than anybody else's and then I have those relationships built and then I try to pass that on to the people that work for me and then they may pass on like just a more modern technique on how to how to prepare something and then and you have that under your belt and you know it's just uh it's always about nonstop kind of learning and you have to you have to be open to to evolving and changing and that's what makes it exciting to be in um, a professional kitchen in a restaurant um, on a daily basis if you didn't have that element of of change and and desire to learn um, you know I've got a new uh, pastry team um, husband and wife uh, Ellen Ramos and Carolyn Nugent and uh, you know like I can learn from him him every day I've never seen you know they're, they're constantly like you know they're you want people that want to push push on a daily basis and and you learn from them and uh you know, so what are you learning from this? God, like, uh, you know, just the other day for New Year's Eve, we, um, I had had uh, this um, kind of a blown sugar. It looked like almost like a Christmas ornament at uh, hmm. uh, Lamboisie when I was in, in Paris uh, mm-hmm. last year. I hadn't been to Paris in like 17 years, and I had had this dessert that it was a, it was a, um, um, the blown uh, sugar, and inside of it was uh, this pistachio ice cream and amarina cherry. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, I just spoke to them. I showed them the picture on my phone and I said, I think this would be really pretty great to do on, uh, on new year's and, and, uh, but with uh, blood orange instead of, uh, the version that I had. And, uh, and you know, the next day, um, uh, their sous chef, uh, Mindy, uh, Bieber was just in, in the kitchen and I looked through the window and there was this beautiful, um, orange toned, uh, ball and uh, and I mean they had to make 120 20 of them and they're very labor labor intensive <laughs> but 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 um, it's like no no questions asked just like you know done done we need this to do it and those are the kind of uh, you know um, they had the inner techniques cer- yeah no they and so they could they could do it and also add the artistry very much so like the technique was uh, was key learning learning how to do that um, you know I definitely go more in a savory savory um you know style uh, of cooking but so they've lent an entirely new dimension to i think quince and and likewise with some some of the younger chefs uh, that are running the kitchen and where they've worked and what they bring to the table and then it's my job to to kind of stir everything up and decide like what what is going to work in this like new evolution mm-hmm. of the restaurant while at the same time being honest about the way I kind of cook and, and I always do that with the, the choice of the products. And, and, uh, so if I could teach them about, you know, something that's going on in, in Modena and that style of food and we can, we could, you know, pay tribute to it in, in a dish, but, but, uh, you know, that's what I try to do with them. And then they teach me in return. And then, and that all, that interaction 
you know, kind of just uh, um, goes throughout the, the kitchen. Yeah, and that's the evolution. So we're going to take a little break here, and we'll be back. And I want to talk to you about what, where you see the future of uh, your cuisine and what's happening in America today and what, what, what's important to you. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story, and today's guest is Michael Tusk of Quince Restaurant, and we're sitting in the private room of his elegant and beautiful Quince Restaurant. So, Michael, what what scares you most about the evolution of food right now, and where do where do you think it's going? What's going to happen in San Francisco in the next five years? Where are the what are the signs? What are you interested in? Got a whole <laughs> threw it all at you. It's spaghetti on the wall. Take it from wherever you want to take um, it. I don't think anything really really scares me. I think you have to be, like we were talking about earlier, being open to change. And I think the Bay Area, in particular, is is open to to you know, as long as you're honest about what you're doing and not trying to 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 fool anybody. And I think the 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 food in the Bay Area, in particular, um, is very uh, not only progressive but um, is very is very product driven. And 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 I think that really you know has a as you know, is something you see not even in the Bay Area, but um, when I get to travel, I'm always trying to go to, to to new markets and seeing meeting new chefs from you know whether I'm in Charleston or or if I'm in Boston or doing doing different events um, that uh, uh, I'm always like out and about and wanting. There's been so much change, um, you know, everywhere in the United States. It's so different than it was. Uh, if you went to the Ferry Plaza Farmers Market the first year that it opened up, you'd see maybe a handful of chefs that would be at the market. Now it's just like you know, like you see every chef in the in the Bay Area there, and they're all interacting and supporting the the local farmers. I think the food has just become much more kind of um, uh, you know natural, but with an underlying you know emphasis on on technique and uh, and um, you know places like. Uh, you know, like a restaurant like Manresa that, that has like a farm that they're working with uh, a lot Love of people. Yeah. yeah, that's like a that's a great example of like you know great great uh, product how it's being used and and his style of food. I have a lot of respect for those type of restaurants and there's a lot of you know there's just so many so many great additions to to the Bay Area that um, and they all cook in a slightly different fashion. But I think a lot of them you know are are you know. Whether they're foraging or they're buying directly from from farmers, or the technique is definitely has just through you know um, technology, like it gets transferred so much faster these days. Where you know ten years ago you might have to go to you know to to France or or Spain to to go work work someplace. Now you know there's so many different great whether it's blogs or or you know you could learn a a great deal. Um, as like a student, um, just by going on to, to like YouTube and watching videos of, of you know, um, chefs in, in general. It's just an amazing, you know, and the fact that these culinary institutes can then incorporate a lot of this and then get the information out faster is amazing. Like if, I haven't, if I'm trying to make a pasta that I haven't made before, I'll just go watch, watch some videos and, and try to figure out the technique. And you have to have that desire to want to do that. And I think, uh, but in general, I don't think, uh, I don't think anything really kind of scares me. I think as long as you're, you're honest about what you're doing and, and that is transmitted to your guest, then, then you have, uh, um, 
and you want to cook that way, you don't try to be anything that you're you're not. Then, uh, and I like, you know, giving credit to people in my kitchen when 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 they're at the forefront of of what we're doing because um, you know, it's my job to orchestrate everything. And if they think the same way that I do about you know the raw products that we're acquiring and and how we want to present things, then then uh, you know you can you can always kind of keep track of the trends that are kind of going on. But but I think that you know like anything there'll be a, um, a resurgence of something that we might have had in the past and and then you know things are very cyclical where where you know i think uh, things have changed though for for the better i think the food's much more healthier in the bay area healthier there's so many different artisan um well, you, know. you lead the way in California. I mean, the trends start here. So we're going to have to, um, unfortunately, I, this this just whizzed by this whole interview. Can you can you make a prediction of something in the next five years that's going to be important or evolutionary? Hmm. That is a tough one. Um, you know, I couldn't say anything like. Um, is there a cuisine that you're curious about that if you know you could take a month off you would go live in this country? I definitely would like to spend time in Japan mm. and uh, that's something that I really haven't had the chance to do. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely something really um, that's on the top of my list if I had to say anywhere that I'd like to, to spend time it would definitely be be you know going to japan um yeah i'm not great with uh with predictions i feel like um like like i spoke about earlier things will things always kind of come full circle and something that that we might have overlooked um that's a great thing about some of the restaurants that i have been lucky enough to work at and you know uh, if you look at say you know the way people are are just the whole you know, whether you're in Brooklyn or San Francisco or or anywhere around the country, that there is always an emphasis on the, these uh, where things are from, how they're prepared, who's making them. That wasn't really, you know, and especially where things are, are from. And then being able to work at a place like, uh, you know, starting off in Berkeley, at a place like Chez Panisse, that definitely educated me on that. And then I saw an artisan, you know, somebody like, like Paul, who was a, you know, you know, you see like, how many more salumi companies do you see in the country right now? And I feel like um, those were things that I definitely saw 10 or, 10 or 15 years ago that were definitely going to be important. Now now it's kind of commonplace, and, and to see that at the beginning was great. So I'm sure though I'm, I'm missing missing something, but for, well, for the it, most part. You know, it's been a wonderful interview, and it's been full of wisdom. Thanks. And I want to thank you. I had one other thing. Oh, the, tell the me. One, the one thing I, I'd say that... You know, I think that there's, um, for the future, I think that, that um, you know, um, chefs in particular can definitely pave the way for for change just outside of their kitchens. And then you see so many chefs, like um, for 2000, for the last three years, I've been the chef chair for Share of Strength and Taste of the Nation. Those are the kind of things that I think are overlooked, that, that there are so many, so many chefs, whether it's like, you know, uh, Mark Vetri and Suzanne Gowen, like what they're doing with Alex's Lemonade. And, and there, there's, um, you know, when we can get outside of our own kitchens and, and work to, to really uh, support these, uh, these causes, 
that's something that I think that is overlooked sometimes by by the general public that that the chefs are getting out of their kitchens and they are supporting great causes that are a lot more important than uh, than just serving our guests that if we could you know fight uh you know um, you know children's uh cancer and uh homelessness and and uh and uh, people that don't have enough food right now that that that's probably you know if we can do anything besides what we're doing in our own kitchens it's definitely getting out there and and uh and uh you know putting ourselves and what we're cooking a backseat to what we can do for future generations i think chefs are among the most generous people in the world and that's that's a wonderful way to end this interview. I appreciate Thanks, it. Michael. It was great talking to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. We'll see you next time. A shout-out to my producers, Jack Inslee and Robin Cohen. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.